Lord, we do desire this morning to see something of you in your word as you open it up and open our minds that we may be illumined with your revelation. We desire that uh, you would speak clearly as, well, we know that you speak clearly. We desire that we be able to understand what you speak, and that our minds might be cleared as it already been prayed, and that we may leave here conformed more and more to your image that you may have your way in our lives. We desire to be effective in the world that we live in. We just pray that uh, this passage help us to minister to others as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Yes? Can I share something that's more posted this morning that fits right in with what we're studying? Sure. She said, if we are waiting for all the bad news to let up in order to rejoice... We will live and die completely miserable. In this day of unrelenting bad news, we must make the choice not to let it sink so deep that it penetrates further into our souls than the best news ever preached. Jesus saves. Read all of Romans 8. Every single sign of creation groaning is also a sign of his soon coming redemption of all things. You've got to take a joy break, folks, or you'll be broken by the unrelenting battering rams. Amen. Very good. And we are in Romans 8, and we're going to look at key passage. Last time we didn't make too much progress, but I didn't hear any complaints, so (laughs) you didn't kick me out of the class as I was afraid you might. But this morning we're going to look some more at... How to Live the Christian Life, and we've got to chapter 8 that gives us the keys and the, I don't want to say secret, but the the way of victory in the Christian life made our way through chapter 7, and we saw that there's also a defeated way to live, and it leaves you wretched man that I am, preparing the way for what we have in chapter 8. And I keep reminding you of scenes in Rome to remind us that uh, this was written to a particular group of people. Throughout time, God has revealed himself to people of like nature. And there are people at Rome that were believers, were struggling with the same things that we struggle. So these are just scenes that uh, would have been ever-present amongst the Roman people and a reminder that they were real people that lived in real time, had real needs just like you and I. And that was a culture not too much different from our culture, maybe some of the little specifics only, but cultures in general and ours particularly, we we divide. In fact, the news tells us that we are more divided as a nation than we ever have been in our history, and that's probably the case, unfortunately. And we divide in terms of poor and rich. Easy way to divide and separate people. Big divide today, liberal versus conservative. In fact, the gap widens. Antagonism grows. Great divisions. Minorities versus whites. Whites nowadays are looked down upon, apparently, according to the culture at least. Minorities, you guys feel uplifted at all? Probably not, right? (laughs) And that's what they say, anyway. Uneducated versus educated. There's a gap there. Seems to widen as well. 
list goes on, uncultured, and the elites were the deplorables. Is that right? We're not the elites. So the, the divides go on and on and on. But really the ones that are most important are those that uh, Scripture makes. And the basic divide is between the unregenerate and the regenerate. And our whole purpose, the reason that God has left us here after we've trusted in him, is that we may reach out and bridge that gap between the unregenerate and the regenerate. And we are mediators in a way, in fact, in a real way. We are mediators. We are a kingdom of priests, the book of Revelation tells us. Bridge a gap between God and those that are alienated from him, those that are separated from him. But we've been noticing also in the book of Romans that there's a divide within Christianity, within those that are regenerate, a divide between those that are believers. This is not so evident in the world, And unfortunately, the majority are probably those that live by the flesh rather than by the Spirit. But the Bible makes a definite divide, and that's what this passage does. It makes a definite divide. In fact, it focuses on those that walk in the flesh, laying out, I think, characteristics of those. So we've looked at justification. We're in the section we call sanctification, and we use these words because these are the words that Paul used. So we have to define them. We've defined sanctification as basically dealing with how do you live the Christian life from the biblical perspective and from Romans. It's that process that God is using in our lives to conform us more and more to to his image. Now, we think of it as how do we respond to different things in our experience or how do we live the Christian life, different ways of responding And certainly there are different ways, but there's also the way that God has established. And we got the principles in chapter 6, the means by which God has orchestrated our sanctification. It has already begun. In fact, I think that sanctification even begins before salvation in a sense, in that God calls us to himself to separate But the essential principles are chapter 6, and principles continue, but they're from the negative perspective in chapter 7, where we have the problems that we'll encounter in sanctification, and it lays out a picture of what living in the flesh looks like, and it ends, like I said, in verse 24, where it says, wretched man that I am, anticipating the power that's available for those that walk in the Spirit. And Paul asks the question after he notes, wretched man that I am, he says, who will rescue me from this body of death? So he's looking at a personal being or a person rather than a method or a key or a secret or some philosophy, but it's centered in a person and it's centered in the person of God himself via the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the means by which God gives us power, enablement, in order to live the Christian life. So we've been looking at that concept, and we're getting close to the end of the sanctification process. Chapter 8, power. First 11 verses, power over the sinful flesh. This is the alternative to chapter 7. 
we completed looking at verses 1 through 4, freedom from condemnation. And it's worth repeating because I think these verses, at least amongst the commentators, and I guess I've noticed those that interact as well, when they look at verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The English word condemnation, the word that is there, I think conveys ideas that we associate with eternity. Now, I'm not denying that it has that connotation, but this is a different word. This is a specific word that includes both. It includes not only the ultimate condemnation that's in the future, but the word is kata krima, not just krima. Krima can be translated condemnation or judgment, but what we have in verse 1 is kata krima. It intensifies it when you add a preposition to a Greek word. And I think it conveys the whole spectrum of condemnation that includes living outside of fellowship with God. In other words, it includes a Christian walk. And after you've completed reading chapter 7, you might think, well, I deserve condemnation. I feel wretched. I can't live. I can't do what I, I want to do, what, what I know is right. I want to do what the law says, but I can't find my way through it. I can't do it and you're frustrated, you, you feel condemned. And I think the condemnation here is in terms of the believer as well. In other words, certainly the believer that is trusted in Jesus Christ has eternal life assured, and there is no condemnation for him. But in the context of sanctification, I think it pertains to the believer as well. And it includes those areas of consequences or the suffering of the consequences of sin as a result of living in the flesh. So there's no condemnation. So when Christ died on the cross, he died not only for eternal sins, but he also died for the sins that are ongoing in the Christian walk. And to emphasize that, the King James, and there's good uh, textual Support for the idea, it adds that little phrase at the end that we have at the end of verse 4. It's almost identical. In order to convey the idea that it's not only those in Christ, for those who are in Christ, in other words, not just the believer, but in verse 4, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, that little phrase is added to verse 1 in some manuscripts. And there's pretty strong evidence for it, and a lot of good Bible teachers believe that it should be placed there. But even if it's not, it is in verse 4 in the same context. So the context pertains to those who are either walking in the Spirit or are walking in the flesh. So the condemnation pertains to the Christian walk. I'm just reviewing here for the law. Namas, again, we've seen that over and over. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have two laws here, and it's not either one of them are not capitalized. And we said that the book of Romans uses the word law in a lot of different shades of meaning. Most of them deal with either the Old Testament in general or the Mosaic law. But the New American Standard doesn't capitalize it because it's referring to a law not related to the Mosaic Law. It's related to a law like laws of nature, 
And just as there's laws of nature, there are also spiritual laws. The way God has set up the universe, the physical universe, he has built into it predictability, repeatability, you might also say, laws of nature. But also he has built into the spiritual realm as well, laws. So we have two laws interacting. Chapter 7 describes the law of sin and death. And it's like a law. You can't avoid it. You can't get out of it. And it's only frustrating unless you avail yourself of another law that counteracts it. So you have two laws. So we have a law here, a law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And the point I've been making, this is all review still, and I use the illustration of a Boeing 777, and we've done this two times already, so I'm not going to belabor it, but basically a lot of stats on the large aircraft here. What's most important is this empty and this maximum weight, 150 tons empty weight. Can you read that? It's a little blurry there. Fully loaded, 300 passengers and all their luggage, fully fueled, and whatever else it's carrying, 330 tons. Point I made, there's a law of gravity that keeps that on the ground. And none of us, even all of us combined, cannot lift it off the ground. In fact, why would we want to anyway? (laughs) Be useless to lift it off the ground, right? So is this a useless accumulation of plastics and aluminum and everything else? Well, no, we build these things because we hope that we can get them off the ground. But the only way to do that is, and I've kind of given you a description of the little physics there, we need forces that counteract other laws. So aerodynamic forces overcome the law of gravity. If you know the aerodynamics the aerodynamics at a certain speed will lift 330 tons without any problem. They take off every day, and when that is in effect, then that 330-ton aircraft floats through the air like a feather. And now it's useful. Why would you want to lift it in the first place? No use, just wasting your energy. But if you want to ride from uh, the U.S. to Israel, Tel Aviv, as some of you did in May, then uh, you would uh, find it very useful because you can make the trip in 10, 12 hours, floating above the clouds, totally unaware that you're riding in 330 tons. It's almost like you're just floating along as you run into a little bit of turbulence. But the, the... uh The key here is you have to have a law that counteracts the law of gravity that has enough force, enough power to be able to maintain that very heavy aircraft above the ground. So also we have these laws, the law of the spirit of life. It's a law that is more powerful because God is involved in it. It's the Holy Spirit working in the life of the new nature We've been stressing in chapter 7, God does not reform the old nature. He doesn't improve who we are in the flesh. But he can counteract if we trust in him by the law of the spirit of life. That's 8.2. He can counteract the law of sin and death. That's also in verse 2. 
there's this principle or this law of evil, this law of sin. We saw it in chapter 7, 21, chapter 7, verse 23. And the only way to counteract that is with a force or a law or a principle greater. We saw that the, we within ourselves don't have the power to counteract the power or the law of sin and uh, death. Willpower doesn't do it. Self-effort doesn't do it. Trying to obey the law doesn't do it. That's all chapter 7. We need the law of the spirit of life. And then we're going to see in uh, 3 through 4, now he's going to talk about the Mosaic law or the Mosaic covenant. So he's using the word law in three different ways here, three different senses. One in a positive, one in a negative, and one in the more common way referring to the Mosaic covenant. Still reviewing for what the law could not do. The law was not designed to uh, enable the Old Testament believers to live the Christian life. It was only to reveal what God expected and what God desired. But there was no power there. There was no enablement. That was not the design of the law. God did not build into the law power. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. Not that the law is weak, but it's the flesh that is weak. The flesh is unable to do what God expects. God is the one that did it, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. That's the cross. The cross provided all of the means by which we would have eternal life but also provided all of the means that we would have enablement and power to live the Christian life. He condemned sin in the flesh. There's katakrima again, the verbal form. So he's talking about the same thing as he did in verse 1. This condemnation that includes the Christian walk and consequences of sin, that is condemned. It's in his flesh on the cross, because he is, he came or was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, everything like us except sin. So it's in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was sinless, and there's a purpose, there's a reason for it. Verse 4. So that the requirement of the law, again we have namas, and now it's capitalized, this is Mosaic law might be fulfilled in us. Very key. Counteracting the law of sin and death. Enabling us to fly through the Christian walk. Otherwise, we're grounded. Otherwise, we can't get off the ground uh, spiritually. So we need something that overcomes, and it actually fulfills what God expects. But it's only in His power. And notice, might be fulfilled in us. In other words, we're not the one that does it. It's the Holy Spirit that does it, but he does it through us and in us. There's a partnership there. There's a trust that takes us back to chapter 6, verse 11, where we reckon these things to be true. In other words, trusting that what God has said is, in fact, the truth. And then it talks about who do not walk according to the flesh. In other words, it's applicable to those that are not trying to lift 330 tons of useless effort, but instead are allowing the 
aerodynamic forces to carry us. In other words, the spiritual aerodynamic forces. We walk according to the spirit. That's where we ended last time. So let's take a look at this idea of walking. It's an image. It's a visual picture that God gives us of what it means to live the Christian walk. And if you do a word study, how many of you were able to look up some verses? Any of you do that? Uh, Ellen. How is the word used, Ellen? Give us, inform us. It was a lot of, I, I have the Strong's. Right. And I looked up with the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's Great. used as um, just a general walking, step by step. use. And then there's the. A literal walking, literal walk. one step in front of them, or then, then the next step, etc. Okay. And there were lots of examples of walking the way you live your life. And, but there were lots of words. It wasn't just one or two. There were quite terms for it in Hebrew, Hebrew and the Greek. And the Greek. A lot of subtle differences. Yeah. Good. So two basic usages. The word that we have here is peripateo. Not that most of you may be interested, but just for Maddie. <laughs> Pardon me? We have to pick on you, but otherwise the day's not complete. And others... The literal use that Ellen is describing, walking step by step in a literal sense. Jesus walked, and it refers to him moving from one location to another location. Matthew 4.18 was one of the ones I think that uh, Ellen probably noticed. Got it, but I can't find it. Here's another one, though. Matthew 14.25-26. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them... In this case, very interesting, walking on the sea, step by step on the Sea of Galilee. Interesting. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. So they saw him literally walking on water. Matthew 4.18 is another one. 9.5, it's a paralytic where Jesus healed him. And he's having a confrontation with the Jewish leaders there. And he says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up to the paralytic and walk? In other words, literally take steps, steps that he had not taken before. Matthew 15 says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon Palmer and his brother, casting into the sea for they were fishing. Okay, so just an everyday usage Normal walking. That's the image. In other words, the Christian life has some analogous relationship to that image. It's a step-by-step journey, you might say. It has a destination. Christian walk has a destination. In other words, we're not aimlessly just wandering, but we are going on a journey in a certain direction, but it takes time and it takes step-by-step. There's ups and downs. In other words, you may have some diversions, just as you might make a journey and leave a trail. So this is the literal sense. It's also used in a kind of broad, we might say, and Ellen described it as how you live your life. We might call that a metaphorical use as opposed to the literal use. To simply live, to behave, or to act in a certain way. Let's look these up. Somebody look up John twelve thirty five, and somebody Mark 7, 5. 
where it's not talking literally, but it's using kind of the same image, but not in this case necessarily in a third way that I'm going to give you here, the way that we have it probably in the Romans 8 passage. Who's got John 12? And Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light. Test darkness, lest, lest it's overtake. Okay, that, that's kind of somewhat maybe spiritual, but it's more, at least metaphorical. In other words, walk in a certain way or live in a certain manner. Living in light. Maddie, do you want to do uh, Mark 7, 5? Okay, walking according to the traditions of the Jewish elders. In other words, living their life after what the Jewish elders kind of prescribed or their their traditions, the things that they instructed. Some of them may have been good. Some of them more than likely legalistic. Very so that good. could sort of just be like a cultural thing. Yeah. You live as an American. Yes. Come here and want to live yes. as an Iranian or a... Right. What, how do you want to live? You know, exactly. And, and living as... And yes, and peripateo is used in that way. In other words, it's used, in other words, what's the custom by which you are living your life? So we have those two usages, and a little bit more particular, or you might say more in the spiritual realm, there's a spiritual use where you live spiritually. And this is where the Romans 8 passage comes in, and there are several passages, in fact, a lot of passages, let's look at, these, there's a positive and there's negatives. Ephesians 2.2 2 is a negative, but it's speaking spiritually. Somebody look that one up. 4.17, somebody get that one. 4.1, 4.1 is a good one. Uh, 5.8, Galatians 5.16. All right, 4.1 and 4.17. Who's got 2.2? 2? Connie's got that one. Bill, you want to do 5.8? And who wants to do Galatians it's out of... Lou's got Galatians 5.16. Let's do Ephesians 2.2. This is in a negative context. In fact, read verse 1 as well, because they kind of go together. And you were made alive, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to verse of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Okay, what is described there? Now, that's a spiritual description. Walking in deadness... That's a description of how the unbeliever lives his life. Walking, and he's walking in that context according to the culture, basically, you could say. The, the, how does it phrase there? Walking according to the course of this age, okay, this world. Living just like everyday person, but it's deadness. Because he's going to contrast that with spiritual life. Mary Lee. I was going to say, is that still parable? Peripateo. Mm-hmm. That's the. In fact, all of these are that Greek word. Four one. Read that one, and then four seventeen. Kind of generally here. Sorry about that. Kind of a general description of after Paul lays out three chapters of who we are in Christ. Now, what does he want us to do? I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk worthy of. Okay, walk worthy of the calling. He's laid out that calling in three chapters in a lot of detail. And it's a glorious calling. 
And now he desires that we take step by step in the Christian walk to live that out. That makes sense? And then verse 17. It says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. There's the negative aspect. Don't walk like the, in this case, Gentiles. In other words, the unbeliever, basically. I think he's using Gentiles in a kind of a broader sense there. Then, the futility of their mind, that's an interesting phrase also. Yep. That that's a way of walking. Yes. Yeah, a way of walking includes your mental activity. Yeah, the way you view life, the way you respond to life, or the way you think about things. And Bill, you got five eight. Yes. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. Walk. Okay. In other words, live as children of light. In other words, live your life in the light, basically. And in Ephesians, you can find walking in love. Walking in relationships, this word is used there. Then Galatians 5.16, Luke. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Okay, that's parallel to what we're looking at in Romans 8. Walking in the Spirit. In other words, it's a different way of living your life, organizing your way. And in fact, the rest of the passage here is going to expand upon that and contrast these two ways of living. It makes sense? And at this point, we can develop two more principles, number 17 already. There's power available, the power of the Holy Spirit for us to fulfill God's will. In other words, fulfilling what he desires in his law. And that's the only way that we can do it, is through his power. We can also come up with number 18, walking in the Spirit is the means of sanctification. In other words, this is how God desires to sanctify us, in great contrast to what we've been looking at in chapter 7. Two major principles, right off the bat in Romans 8. So that brings us to verses 5 through 8, where we have, he's going to lay this out so that we we kind of can recognize it, we can see it more vividly. What does it mean to walk according to the Spirit? What does that mean? Well, he's going to contrast it and he's going to bring us back to chapter 7. Everything that he said in chapter 7 is walking according to the flesh, and there's a lot of negative effects on it, so he's going to even bring those out some more. But he's going to start with the battle begins in the mind, verse 5. The battle is going to be in our mindset, our worldview, how we approach life, what we think about. Now, everything in the culture, in fact, a lot of things in our experience are going to bombard us with a lot of negative things. and We face negative things all the time. And the only way to combat that is we need to rethink everything biblically. And that's where he's going to start in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh. So he's going to give us the negative. For those who are according to the flesh, and just a quick reminder, remember we've seen this idea of flesh 145 times it occurs in the Bible. Jesus has flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's been talking about the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then all the way in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. Jesus became fully man. We saw that in the prior verse there too. 
He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, not sinful, but in the likeness of it, in that he had all of the nature that we have except for sin. So Jesus had flesh, and in fact, this passage gives us an example of that usage as well. Another usage is 1 John 4, 2, Jesus coming in the flesh. It's used of the physical body, a body that has bones and flesh. There's a couple of passages there. It's used of mankind in general, kind of a specialized usage in Acts 2.17. It's used of the sin nature, and particularly in the book of Romans. When it's used in the book of Romans, it's used of the sin nature. Unbelievers, and an example would be Ephesians 2.3. Unbelievers, that's all they have. They don't have a new nature. They don't have, all they have is the flesh. That's the unbeliever. And because it's described in so many different ways in, in Romans 7, it leads many to conclude that it's describing Paul before he became a believer. But if you remember, I took a different view from that. But the unbeliever, that's all he has is the flesh. So he has weakness. He doesn't have strength. He has no power to lift 330 tons of spiritual weight, you might say. So he can't overcome that. That's total depravity, by the way. But we as believers, we have two natures. Believer has flesh, in that we still have all that we were before we were unbelievers. God doesn't reform it, but he wants to overcome it with aerodynamic spiritual forces. Okay? So the believer, we saw it in 7.5, and now we see it, it was in 18, verse 25, and now we're going to see it in chapter 8, 6 through 8. So it's referring to the old nature that the believer still has. The believer has two natures. He has the fleshly nature and a recreated, regenerated new nature. And a key passage is the Galatians passage that we read already, and also Galatians 6, 8. So, for those who are according to the flesh, the only thing they can do, they have no other option, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. In other words, self-interest. Set their minds on those things that just come normal. In other words, the concerns. How am I going to make a living? What am I going to do? How am I going to pay this debt? What am I going to do about these, these kids? How am I going to handle this? All the things that are concerned of us. Now, we as believers have the same concerns, but we have a different option. We can look at them differently. We can have a different mindset. So they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Then the alternative, but those who are according to the Spirit, we can set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And that's the starting point in walking in the Spirit. Maddie. Okay, so it's a little unclear to me if you're saying that. Say that again. It's unclear to me whether you're contrasting an unbeliever versus a believer, or if you're contrasting a believer living according to that sinful nature okay. versus a believer according to their nature. I understand what you're asking. Okay, so yes. In fact, most of the commentators, and I'm talking about very good conservative commentators contrast the unbeliever 
with the believer, just as Maddie is getting asking for clarification. But what's the key in interpreting passages? What's the number? What's the first one is context. The second one is context. The third one? Context. Okay. I think in the context of sanctification, chapter 6, 7, and 8, I think he's contrasting two ways of living the Christian life. So I would follow consistently with what I said in chapter 7. Now, you might disagree since you were disagreeing in chapter 7. Yeah. Now, this is true of the unbeliever. That's all the option that the unbeliever has. It just fascinates me that so much of the Christian walk happens in the mind. Yes. Yes. That makes so much sense to me that I can either walk with that sin nature or I choose the Spirit. And how many times, like, I think to myself, what is an unbeliever, what goes through their head? Because the Holy Spirit is not quiet. He's actually yelling at me half the time, Karen, don't go that way. If you do that, you're not going to be happy with the results. Right. He doesn't let me alone. He keeps pushing and he keeps mm-hmm. directing and everything. And it's just so amazing. But to, to, to explain that to somebody, that I have something inside of me that talks and directs and does all that, that verse makes total sense to me. Yeah, yeah. So I take it, he's describing a believer throughout. And we can set our minds, and you can see believers, they're worldly. In other words, they don't look any different than the unbeliever. And their lives reflect it. In other words, they will do the same things as the unbeliever. Statistically, believers virtually have the same divorce rate, have the same alcohol addiction rates, have the same all the other, quote, bad sins, if you want to. Well, in the verse 6, I love it in the sense that it Well, says, we'll get there. I know, but it says, to be spiritually minded is life. Peace. Yes. That's the difference. Yes. You have a peace of mind that yes. passes understanding that comes from the Spirit. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get to verse 6. But there's a mindset. There's a mindset. And let's contrast. In, in your example there, we were talking about the mind plus, uh, where does the heart come in? Oftentimes, the heart and the mind are together. Now, when you speak of the mind, are you speaking of the conscious or the mind? I'm talking about the mind in... Physical mind, not the conscious. Well, it, 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 they're kind of meshed. I, I have a hard time separating the two. But I think the focus, though, is what we focus our thinking on, and that is closely tied to our hearts, and, and it affects our conscience. Is that... Mm-hmm. Okay. But our thinking, uh, and I, I agree with, with you, the, the battle is in our minds, most of it. In other words, I've got all these negative thoughts or these pressures are pressing in on me and how am I going to handle them? My first thought is, well, I need to go, you know, this way. And the flesh is going to direct us one way and the spirit may direct us in a different way. Mary Lee? I think that's why Ephesians, well, Galatians, 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 our mind. Renewing our minds. What you have to do is yes. pull all the reactions, all the stuff that you've grown up with, all the stuff that you've collected over the years. You've got to pull it out. Rethink it. Pile it on the curb and then start putting a whole different way of, yeah, and start putting a whole different way of dealing with your life 
into your, your mind. Right. And that's why we study the Word, and that's why we're careful with it, because we are in the process, not only Sunday by Sunday, but as you read and study on your own, you are renewing your thinking such that you're looking at things differently. You have a different mindset. And just some examples, uh, these are kind of very obvious ones. Uh, well, before I get to the examples, this has been the, the focus of Romans 6 through 8. This has been the focus, knowing. How many commands do we have? In other words, do all these things in Romans 6 through 8? How many commands? How many imperatives do we have? No, four. And we have almost a 100 verses there. There are not very many commands, and they're all concentrated in chapter 6. The rest of it, look at chapter 6, beginning in verse 3 there. It's all your your mind. Look at verse 3. Or do you not know? Now he's going to explain. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? A key concept that we need to know and be convinced of. Then he In verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. There's the old self. There's the old nature. It was crucified on the cross. We need to know that. That's a crucial understanding that we have to know and uh, continue to focus on. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, now he's going to give the positive, but this is another truth that we need to know. And even the command, well, I should focus there, 6 and 9, Even the command to consider, that's in the imperative, but even the command is, in other words, consider this to be true. In other words, believe it. Verse 11, that's the essence of the the word there. Even consider or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. That's the first command that we have. And there's only three others that follow. We won't get into that. And then if you keep on reading in chapter... Uh, 723, we saw that not too long ago, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. In other words, it's a battle. We saw the battle in chapter 7. And again, in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, and on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. So the emphasis here is this mental battle. And now in chapter 8, verse 5 and 6 and 7, it's a mindset. So it's a battle of the mind. And I can't help but remind you of this example that I gave you. You loved it so much. I'm going to give it to you again. Do you remember this example? Let me set it up. This person's going to respond based on what she thinks, even though it's totally wrong, but because she has this idea in her mind, she's going to respond. And it's a little humorous, but you remember it. Right? Her actions are following what's in her thinking, even though her mind is totally misguided. Now, somebody else set her up, but her thinking affected the way that she responds. Now, that's kind of a vivid, kind of a humorous even 
kind of sad, I guess you could say, too. <laughs> Example, and she's laughing it up over there. She's enjoying it. But it's an example of, in a general way, we respond to what's in our minds. In other words, our thinking affects our actions. Maybe not so bluntly and blatantly as, as this example, but it carries itself out. So the mind is so important. But those who are according to the Spirit, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And let me just conclude by giving a few examples of these mindsets. Kind of in a general way, we all have careers, and there's nothing wrong with focusing attention and time to our careers. But the unbeliever, that's all he's absorbed in, and he's excessive oftentimes in that. But if the believer is doing the same thing, then he's living in the flesh, much like the unbeliever. Rather than thinking in terms of, well, how can this career enhance my ministry? Or how can I combine the two? Or how can I put more focus on ministry rather than this job and this career? That's just an example of two different mindsets. One exclusively in one area. The believer has another option. The believer can set his mind on the same thing, but he has a different perspective on it. Different way of looking at the same activity. Or for the women, concern about a nice home and you spend a lot of energy and a lot of time and good. That's a good thing. You want to have a clean house and you want a place where your husband can come home and feel comfortable and all that. But sometimes you get over obsessed with it and every little detail has to be in order. And you're not thinking in terms of I'm doing this in order to have a better environment to be more hospitable. And I'm doing it for a bigger purpose. That's a different mindset. Rather than, you know, what are the neighbors going to think? I'm thinking, you know, how can I better minister to those neighbors in terms of that household? Just examples. We tend to be materialistic. We all need stuff. We all need cars or bikes, one or the other. (laughs) Or something. uh, We all need a means of getting around or we other material things. But is our focus on material things? That's all the unbeliever can do. That's the only option he has. But we have a different option. We have a mindset where we look at those possessions and think in terms of their usefulness now, but we invest more in eternal treasures. In other words, there's more to life than just the material. Worldly things as opposed to spiritual pursuits, pleasing self, as opposed to thinking in terms of others' needs. And we're getting too convicting here, so let's let you fill in the blanks. Right, Betty? I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know, that's right. (laughs) So that's verse 5. The battle is in the mind. And verses 6 through 8, we'll go through them more quickly, but let's save them for next time. We're past our time here. It just lays out the results. We'll take a look at the results. And one of them, life in the flesh, is what? Death. Now, let me remind you, however, we've been talking about death in Romans 6, 7, and 8, actually starting in chapter 5. Not ceasing to breathe, not our heart stopping, but more in this comprehensive sense. In other words, there's deadness. Living in the flesh, 
does not produce anything that is lasting in terms of anything living. And that's what he's talking about. And then Karen gave us the alternative life, and that's life in its fullness and peace. Two alternatives. We'll develop that a little bit more next week. We made it through one more verse. Closing thought. God desires that we live an abundant life. He wants us to have fullness, but the only way is walking in the Spirit. Who wants to close for us? Connie? Go ahead. Father, we do list the purposes before you and ministry in Guatemala. Lord, that you would continue to enrich them throughout your, what you are teaching them to their students. Your students be seminary students. Father, pray the same for us, that as you encourage us, we would be able to these lessons forwarded and walk them up, knowing that you have a destiny. We're not going to to your way. Walk in life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.